Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Feels good to say that. It does. It really does. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker, investor, commentator, analyst. I don't even know. Pointer of charts on TikTok. Is that what it's called? <laughs> I don't dance, I promise. Thank God. Got enough of those. I am Dan's co-host. My name is Nick Hill. I also refuse to dance on TikTok, but again, similar to Dan, I'm a mortgage agent. I am an investor and I just try to get involved in any and all things real estate. Yeah. And you're good at it, man. I mean, you slid into my DMs two years ago and look at you, you're like every realtor's favorite share on social media and you always got it's, I think you got you got good takes man and you're you're a little bit more bullish so the realtors like you they all hate me <laughs> you know what infamy is also good and I think you know I think half of my shares are just cuz I I grew a mustache recently which which seems to help but facial hair aside let's dive into episode number 1 yeah, what are we How talking about? Canadian real estate has historically performed in a rising rate environment. This was actually Simone from our friends at TCI. This was actually his idea to get us started because it seems like a pretty topical, relevant thing to discuss here, Dan. So why would that why be? You get I thought us started? That the market was going to be going on a bull run infinitely. Just kidding. We're going to talk about three different iterations of well, two of which are rising rate environments, so the 1980s and the 1990s. And both of which were pretty interesting times for Canadian real estate. We're going to talk about 2008, which wasn't a rising rate environment per se, but it was an exogenous shock and recession and really changed the real estate asset in the Canadian sense. And it's a bit of an outlier in the way that the real estate asset performed. So we're going to look at inflation. We're going to look at rates. We're going to look at recession. We're going to look at how home prices performed. Did they go down? How long did it take to go down? How far did they go down? How long did they take to recover? We're going to look at return metrics, so cap rates, which are basically similar to your price to earnings in equities. Basically, the net operating income divided by the purchase price of a property gives you a sort of rough rate of return. It's a little napkin math metric that most people use, and it also sort of measures the broad market. So you could say Toronto's cap rate is, a, I don't know, it's probably in the twos right now, but Toronto's cap rate's a two. Then we're going to look at the recovery, right? So, okay, we got to the bottom, did real estate lag, was it a little bit behind the recession? And then what did the recovery look like? So that you can look at all of this information and you can say, okay, I think today's market is most like the 90s, or I think today's market is most like X, or I think that History doesn't repeat itself, but I understand that it often rhymes, right? Mark Twain said that. And so we want to get an understanding for, are there lessons to be learned from this history? And can we use those lessons to make better informed decisions in real estate investing today? Well said, Dan. Why don't you start us off with this great quote that you have here? Yeah, sure. So this is a little bit behind our why, right? And this comes from The Economist on their housing market charts page on their website, which is public. And it says that financial media focus most of their attention on stocks and bonds, but the world's biggest asset class is actually residential property. With an estimated value of about $200 trillion, homes are collectively worth about three times as much as all publicly traded shares. So from my perspective, when people talk about real estate, especially on the investment side, not everyone wants to be talking about just houses, but 
On the commercial side, those are very much institutional assets. It's not often you get lay people who are investing in plazas or investing in apartment buildings. And so what you see on the retail side is a lot of young people, young millennials investing in real estate through houses. Maybe they're duplexing them, maybe they're triplexing them, et cetera, et cetera. But so that's what we're going to end up talking a lot about because that's the accessible, that's sort of the entry level for the Canadian investment in real estate. So give me an outline of what we're going to be doing today. For sure. So I think the good place to start is to kind of outline some of the basics here. We're just going to go over some historical interest rates, what prime rate is, the role that the Bank of Canada plays, a quick definition of recession. And then we're diving right into the 80s, baby. So let's rewind here and just go over for the listeners so we're all on the same page here. First things first, prime rib. Sorry, prime rate. (laughs) Prime rib is delicious. Prime rib is delicious. Prime rate is not. It's currently sitting at 3.7%. Prime rate is the interest rate that banks and lenders use to determine the interest rates for many types of loans and lines of credit including credit cards, which we all have, HELOCs, which apparently a lot of Canadians have as well, variable rate mortgages, which are on the rise, car and auto loans. So a lot of us, if not all of us, are affected by prime rate in one way or another. Now, each bank or lender determines their own prime rate based off the BOC. You'll hear us talk about the BOC quite a bit. That is the Bank of Canada. And they have something called an overnight rate. So changes in the target overnight rate are usually followed by similar changes in prime rates. So if we look back at almost 100 years on a chart we hear that you'll find in the show notes, the Bank of Canada overnight rate and the prime rate essentially follow one another quite closely within a few points. Now, The BOC usually raises interest rates when the economy is showing signs of inflation. It's literally their best and essentially only weapon to really fight inflation, which I'm sure everyone's heard is on the rise. And that is important to know here because inflation, rising interest rates, there's usually another word that is associated with those and kind of using the same sentence, and that is the R word, recession quick definition of a recession here is when a nation's economy experiences negative gross GDP, rising levels of unemployment, failing retail sales and contracting measures of income and manufacturing for an extended period of time, that period of time being two consecutive quarters. That is where we are right now, folks. We are seeing this. I actually just did a little post on Instagram about the crazy levels of unemployment, especially in certain sectors like construction that are really hurting us. Anyways, let's dive back into the recessions. There have been 11 of them since 1948 in Canada. That's about one every six years. But you cannot measure, you can't even really predict, only certain few top-tier economists can predict when we're going to see a recession. So we're not going to dive into all those. The ones we are going to look at are the last three, which we think really affected us, and that is 1981 to 82, 1990 to 1992, and the most recent 2008 to 2009. And as Dan said, we are going to be looking at the rates, the real estate prices, and that'll start to illustrate a lot of things for us. So yeah, and and to be fair, there was one recession that did happen between 2008 and present day, which was in I think 2015, there was an oil price shock, and it gave us two very slight declines in GDP. But interesting to think about anyway, because oil price shock and present day are also two topics that are very frequently discussed. So, and actually I think, you know, as a just an interesting fun fact, 8 of the past 11 downturns in 
the economy. I think since the modern metrics, I guess GDP and, and stock market indices were preceded by an oil price shock. So like a very steep increase in oil price. And I think all of them or 10 of the 11 were preceded by a gradual run up in oil prices. So cost of oil price, the cost push inflation causes all goods to accelerate in value. And we start to see the central banks gaming the system, trying to change that equation, make things a little bit more comfortable for everybody. And it naturally forces a bit of a cyclical event. Historically, that's what it tells us. I mean, there's really no way to imply real cause or effect. But anyway, I digress. Let's talk about what we're going to be looking at in these specific cases. So when we look at a rising rate environment, we're going to look at what happened with the rates. We're going to look at when house prices peaked, what was the price at the top, what it was at the bottom, how long it took to get to the bottom, and then how long it took to get back to that original price. We're also going to loosely look at what was happening elsewhere, what was happening within interest rates, inflation, indexes, rents, and the real estate return metrics, which are a derivative of rents. So getting an understanding for were real estate's becoming a better investment during that period of time? Pro tip, the answer is yes, because they were going down in price. But we want to get an understanding for how real estate as an asset class performed during those periods of time so that you can kind of plan or get an understanding to see if there is any planning to be done. So, Nick, let's start off with the second best decade of Canadian real estate history. <laughs> I appreciate that. I was born in 1989. I love the 80s. I just got the tail end. You know what I don't love, though, is the inflation rate in 1981 was 12.47%. That's a little higher. Yeah, just a little higher than what everyone's freaking out about now. The inflation rate in 1982 was 10.77%. So to be fair, though, if I might interrupt, I don't know if CPI is necessarily an honest representation of what inflation is today. I will say that. And then I will let you continue. Fair enough. This is all we've got to work off of. And that can be a whole nother episode. We'll dive into that later. I'll use this. I'm going to introduce a term called inflation psychology because I'm going to use it probably a couple of times throughout this. And Gordon Thiessen, who was the Bank of Canada general during the next period of time that we're going to talk about, but he was the governor of the Bank of Canada. And he mentioned that Canadians have a higher inflation psychology than Americans. And so what this means is that Canadians are more likely to spend money today, almost rushing to get it out of their pockets before it loses value in the anticipation that a good is going to go up in value. So as an example, you're going to go buy a stove, a durable good, right? And you're like, I'm going to go buy the stove today because I think that it's going to be 50% more next year. Canadians have a historically higher inflation psychology. So it, this is important because it makes the Bank of Canada's actions clear in a lot of cases. So when we look at interest rates along that inflation, they were used as a policy tool to try and reduce that inflation. The economy was running a little bit too hot. We did see an oil price shock during that period of time. And a lot of costs were being pushed on the consumers. Rates tripled in a sh relatively short period of time. And they were successful in, in capping inflation. Now, on that run-up, they did actually back off a little bit. And it caused inflation to continue even hotter. And so... The lesson I think that might have been learned there was that rates need to be used relatively swiftly. I would say that they were a more gradual increase, but a high magnitude increase. This is when you hear about boomers all talking about, oh, interest rates were 
21% or whatever. 21% is the top. That was my boomer voice, by the way. 21% was the top. So they went from about around 6%, I think, to, to 21. I think you have the exact numbers, but 6 to like 21% on the prime side. Obviously, this if you imagine interest rates tripling, it's a huge magnitude in capital cost acceleration and household indebtedness sucks a lot of buying power to the economy. What does this do to house prices, Nick? Totally. I mean, we've seen the Bank of Canada follow suit as they have in the past and raise the rates to fight the inflation we're seeing. However, if people only knew what the comparison between rates then and rates now were, I mean, if we look back at the average, the Bank of Canada average rate in those years between 1981 and 1982, the average rate was 15.69. And that caused the lenders to make their prime 17.55%. So I feel like I could probably find like a 100% loan to value private mortgage for less money than that today. Literally, yeah. Don't do that, by the way. (laughs) This is not financial advice. It does put things into perspective. And we see that housing prices, they peaked in the first part of the recession. And I'm just going to quote something here from BC Business from the 80s. So as the city prepared... For Expo 86, the average Vancouver house price more than doubled from 86000 in January 1980 to 177000 in January 1981. But interest rates were also marching north and after the Bank of Canada rate hit 21% in August of 1981. The average house price plummeted to 110000 et cetera, et cetera. But the panic would be short-lived by January 1989. The house price had risen back to 220,000. So we see the same same thing happening again and again and we can analyze this further as we move along to the other recessions but a steep run up in home prices the inevitable tipping point Malcolm Gladwell referenced the inevitable tipping point usually that is directly associated with interest rates the house price plummet the transaction volume plummet And then the slow creep up of return, we always see the transaction volume come back before house prices recover. So tell me a little bit about what was happening with cap rates and and a bit bit about the recovery and and anything else you want to touch on that before we move to your favorite decade. Yeah. So the 80s were interesting because it was an inflationary recession. So there was – it was really monetary policy it was a big theme, right? Because they had they had something to actually control for. It wasn't so much an exogenous shock that was exceptionally clear that was outside of the realm of control, or at least they thought it was within the scope of control. Real estate was very much thought of as an inflation hedge at that period of time. And a lot of that was because you were starting to get institutionalized real estate purchases. The value of real estate in North America very much became this thing that was inaccessible for the layperson and institutions were buying the bigger properties, right? Individuals weren't owning plazas anymore. They weren't owning the office buildings, et cetera. And so people heard this inflation hedge investment thesis and they started to rush into property as inflation started to ramp up. This caused a high degree of speculation. And then in 79, there was this energy crisis that happened as a result of some global conflict. And there was a run-up in oil prices that caused this inflationary environment. People continued flocking into real estate in anticipation that inflation was not going to get any better. House prices ran up and interest rates had to be increased to cap inflation. And what we know about real estate is, especially when prices are going up, you 
as a buyer, have to chase the market and you have to use credit to be able to pay that new market price because it's outside of what you a year ago were saving up to buy at cash, as an example, which a lot of people were actually doing back then. And so once you build this credit dependence into the market, all of a sudden the market becomes sensitive to these changes in the interest rate. And so as interest rates went up, house prices, Nick, as you mentioned, they peaked, I think, in Q3 of 1981. They troughed in Q4 of 1984. So this was a very quick... I know it doesn't sound that quick when you think about it over the course of three years, but when we look at other major cyclical events in Canadian housing and in credit cycles, which you know, if you've ever looked at or, or read or listened to Ray Dalio's How the Economic Machine Works on YouTube would be a great place to get an understanding for how credit cycles work. Three years later, after that 1981 peak, house prices were down as far as 50 to 60%, but on average across the country, let's say 30 to 50%. Canada is very microeconomic. Each city kind of trades independently based on different values that they have, geography, employment markets, etc. We can get into that another time. It took until Q2 of 1987 to return to that peak value. And during this period of time, we saw an acceleration from the lower bound of being a 6% cap rate to the upper bound being an 8% cap rate. So the rate of return on real estate actually got far more compelling as those prices came down and rents sort of had to keep up with inflation. So the inflation hedge that was built into real estate ended up being pegged more to rents than to price. And again, it took until Q2 of 1987. And then you mentioned you know, right after that, we got back into this speculation and 89, house prices peaked again. So let's talk about 89 and again, my favorite decade, the 90s. Wow, 89 to 91. Those were some tumultuous times right there. So the 90s, specifically 1990 to 1992, let's start things off with with interest rates again. So they're pretty bad. Uh, 1990, <laughs> we see the prime rate averaging 1406 and the BOC's overnight rate averaging 12.75 for that year. However, two years later, by 1992, those have changed and the prime rate had dropped to 7.47 and the overnight rate had dropped to an average of 6.53. So those rates eventually worked their way down to the high threes and low fours only to hit six and even eight at some points. However, it would average out at 4.93 over the next eight years, all the way up to the year 2000, Y2K. It was during the first years of this recession here that we saw a drop in both home prices and overall transaction volume. Again, sound familiar? It wasn't into the tail end of that recession that transaction volume picked back up and asset prices did continue to suffer. So again, we're already seeing these reoccurring trends. So Dan, why don't you tell us a bit about what was happening with sale prices during this time. Yeah, for sure. A couple notes on the interest rate as well. So I talked about the magnitude of the increase in the last one that we saw a tripling of the interest rate. And this is important in today's environment because we had such a small interest rate, so it's easy to replicate these magnitudes. Right. I just want to jump in there for a second and say, you know, all the clickbait out there that interest rates doubled and, you know, doubling again. Well, it's pretty easy to double from 0.5 to one, right? I mean, doubling at 7.47% would be a whole different issue. Right. Yeah. And so the magnitude in this period of time was that interest rates about doubled. And one of the interesting 
points to note about this is that the speed at which they doubled was much more significant than the speed at which they increased rates in the previous inflationary cycle. So in the 80s, when we talk about the early 80s, they were kind of gradual with their way up. They were really toying with this monetary policy tool. They backed it off a little bit and then inflation ramped up worse and they skyrocketed rates after that. So when you, again, return to that principle of inflationary psychology in Canadians, Gordon Thiessen, who was the Bank of Canada governor at this period of time, mentioned that this was something that he was concerned about, Canadians' propensity to spend money sooner rather than later. And again, there was this psychology that real estate was an inflation hedge. And so one of the things that was distinctly different was that they raised rates a lot faster than they did in the past. And the reason likely was because it does require swift action to cap inflation, as I think that they they learned. The challenge was that you're increasing the borrowing cost for an asset that in Q1 of 1989 peaked at 273,000-ish dollars. And it dipped actually going into the summer a little bit. And then there was, you know, if you look at one of these cyclical charts, what almost looks like a bull trap. And that was in Q4 of 1989. So Q1 and Q4 of 1989 had very similar prices and it was high. Then it took until 1996, so seven years of downturn for the values to bottom out. And that was down about 40 to 50%. Depending on the market, there are some areas where it was 89 to 94, like the greater Toronto area, and but most of Canada was actually 96 if you look at the HPI, house price index across the country. Now, the interesting part is from that bottom, it took until 2002 to get back to that valuation that was set in 1989. That is 13 years of recovery. And the more interesting part is if you actually use inflation-adjusted dollars to figure out how long it took, it would have actually taken until 2012 to return to that valuation. So in 2002, they just returned to that $270,000 home price. But without adjusting for inflation. If you adjust it for inflation, it could have taken over 20 years to get back to those prices. So just a little piece of inflation on there. What was inflation during this time period? It actually wasn't horrible. It was now, again, the benchmark for inflation where all the central banks want it. And this isn't just Canada. We've seen central banks all over the world try to battle inflation as it becomes more of a global issue. Inflation really needs to be in and around that 2 to 3%. So in 1990, it was at 4.8%. In 1991, it was at 56 But it ended up decreasing down to 1.5 in 1992 and then 1.9 in 1993, right below that target of that 2 to 3%. So now, I think there was also a bit of an overcorrection during that period. Of, like in the ni- I think around 95, we almost touched a deflationary period. So inflation actually went below zero for a short period of time, which – you always hear people talk about, oh, inflation is so bad and also deflation is so bad. So they're kind of like, you got to imagine the Bank of Canada or the central banks really threading this needle between keeping inflation at in the low one to two range, but not putting it below zero. Because I don't know, everybody says that it's a bad thing. I'm not exactly sure why, honestly. So we'll have to research that one too. For sure. And I think the funny thing about inflation that we haven't really mentioned so far is that it's really tied to 
consumer confidence and consumer mentality. And I think with a lot of the things that have happened in the last two years and the differences and in mentality that we've had to experience, those are direct contributing factors to to why we've seen inflation on the rise. But anyways, yes, let's so, we'll, I mean, we'll cover- I do think well, I think those are important if we're really trying to get granular in the analysis of of Canadian real estate, right? So there's this sentiment that real estate is an inflation hedge, right? But the challenge is that we don't really actually have... You have evidence of that in non-cyclical periods of time. So if you're in a bull run, real estate will typically outperform inflation or at a minimum, it will produce at inflation. So it'll grow at inflation. Plus you get yield, plus you get principal pay down from tenants, etc. So there's some value in that respect. But the actual inflation element of real estate is built on how we value properties, right? So remembering I did a postgraduate certificate in valuation at UBC, or I actually didn't finish it, but I, I got I didn't write the exit exam. But basically there's three different ways that people value property or appraisers value property. And one of them is replacement cost new or RCN. Basically what that means is what does it cost to rebuild that house? And then you apply depreciation to it. So if you say the economic life of a house is a hundred years, that house is 50 years old, you cut that value in half. Okay, that would tell you basically what it would cost to rebuild X house on any given day, right? Now, in today's economy, we are seeing construction costs rising and they're rising at insane rates, like 22% year over year. And that's like a very, very conservative estimate. So this sort of establishes your price floor. Like right now, it costs in, costs in the creation costs, total creation costs, hard and soft costs for condominiums in the city of Toronto are like $900 to $1,000, right? So what- Per square foot. Per square foot. Right. So what this means is that this sort of creates, you have to think about this as a, that's your incentive for developers or builders to put units into the market. So if values start coming down, supply starts to get constricted. They stop bringing units to market and it sort of expedites how how real estate gets to the equilibrium, especially when you think about a country like Canada, where we're bringing so many people in through immigration. So that's your demand side and your supply side is not, a real estate isn't a fast supply chain. It takes six years from planning to construction, to occupancy for a condo building, as an example. Maybe if you're really lucky on the detached side, so your your ground-based housing product, you could get it done within one to two years. That would be like absolute fastest. So again, not a huge supply elasticity, not a responsive supply chain. So it gives you a little bit of an understanding as to why real estate is often considered a hedge against inflation. But as we've seen in these two downturns, the inflation hedge didn't outweigh the exposure that it had to interest rates. Well said. I, and I think that's a good segue to move on to- Yeah, it is. Because you know. this is an exogenous recession, right? This is a recession, not so much, doesn't have as much to do with inflation, interest rates, et cetera. Exactly. I mean, the inflation rate in 2008 was a very modest 2.3%. So again, still kind of within that 2 to 3% threshold that they want to see now. Again, we all have fond memories of the 2000s, LimeWire, MSN, Walkmans, Facebook, all that good I stuff. I think it was MySpace even back then. Yeah, it might have. You know, I, I was, was a big MySpace, MySpace guy. guy. I was a huge MySpace you, guy. Yeah, you would. You would. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone listening, go find Dan on MySpace. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Follow Dan on MySpace. Okay, let's just rifle off some some quick stats here and then, and then kind of get into – because there's not a ton to talk about – this was a different recession. So we're going to go over just a few numbers here and then kind of explain why it was a different recession. And I think it's it's probably a good time to start presenting 
our overall findings and, and what that means for the listeners. So the prime rate at the start of 2008 to the end of 2009 averaged 3.56. So I'd pretty similar. That. Pretty similar I'd to what we're seeing now. Yeah, yeah sure. I'd take it. Come on. It's not that bad. However, the overnight rate averaged 1.67 for most of 2000 and, and then spent most of 2009 at 0.25. Now that that is cheap money. And this is sort of where we first got addicted to that cheap, cheap money. Well, I mean, it's hard not to, right? I mean, you're borrowing at nothing. Like, what is that? That's that's crazy. Yeah. To be like, you know, in hindsight, it's always easy to make these statements, but you let that go on for too long and mentality starts to change. You've got a whole group of new millennial buyers coming into the market or what? what's the age category just older than a millennial? They, Gen they would have, X, right? Gen X. They would have experienced all this as well. And then that goes back to that consumer mentality, right? If I'm used to 0.25 or even 3.56 as the standard for years, and then all of a sudden rate starts to double and triple and quadruple all the way up to one, two, three, four, I'm going to be shocked. Whereas a boomer is going to look back at this and say, that's still cheap money. Yeah. And I mean, that does come into that rate psychology, right? Like when you think about inflation psychology, the other side is interest rate psychology. Because I mean, if you look at that peak that you're talking about in 1981, and you draw a line to today's interest rates, I mean, rates really have been steadily decreasing, save for a few small anomalies since 1981, right? Like, I mean, there was a couple of jumps up, but we're sort of on this downward trajectory. And 2008 was a, an exceptionally good reflection of that, right? Like we didn't have much room to move rates down. We were already at historic low rates. And then this exogenous systemic shock happened south of the border. We didn't have a huge house price run up in Canada prior to 2008. We weren't as addicted to speculation as the US. It's almost like we'd learned our lesson back then from, you know, in the 90s. We saw what they were doing in the States. Everybody was levering up and buying houses and everybody's seen the big short. And if you haven't, you, you got to watch it. And I'd actually recommend reading the book too. Canada did pretty well through the 08 recession compared to most other OECD countries, but we dropped rates. And this is the important distinction because there wasn't much room under that historical rate. So we're kind of toying with this idea of net negative interest rates where your borrowing cost is lower or is below zero after you factor for the rate of inflation. So today, inflation's at, so let's say 7% and rates are at 5%. You're still borrowing at minus 2%, right, in present day. And so this is sort of where we got into this NIRP, N-I-R-P, negative interest rate policy or net NIRP, which is interest minus inflation is, is a negative number. What happened was in the US, house prices peaked and they started this steady downturn. They dropped until like the mid-20-teens, right? I think 2013, 2014, before they started their upward trajectory again. In Canada, our prices peaked in like Q3 of 20, 2008, and they barely dipped, like 10%, let's say, max in the micro, right? And, and you're talking, sorry, that's not transaction volume, that's sales price. Sales price, right, yeah. Sales so, price. Yeah, house prices, they dipped. But then what happened was they started this rip that has is we're kind of just getting to the end of that to be honest with you like the bull run oh, that was such that a was, good time and it i was mean a good time. the reality is this bull run really started in the 90s right like it started 
in 94 when house prices bottomed out or 96 when house prices bottomed out. And they've just been on a steady uptrend since then with a couple of dips. In 2008, if you look at the chart, really just looks like a dip. It looks like 2017 in Toronto when the non-resident speculation tax dropped prices in in the GTA by, you know, 20 or 30%, right? But then they just ripped right on through after that. And the important point is that interest rates started decreasing. It became compelling from a capital cost perspective for people to borrow money, lever up and buy some of that sweet, sweet Canadian real estate. <laughs> so if we look again at at rates, cap rates, so investment returns, this is where, you know, if you look on the US side, cap rates soared in that correction because prices were coming down, banks were just rifling off properties to avoid bankruptcy. And rents were being, you know, I mean, people still needed houses. So rents were relatively less impacted. But on the Canadian side, we kind of look at the national cap rate. The easiest way to establish what that spread would look like and kind of how it was performing at a a given time in the market is in 2001, the national cap rate was, I think it was 9%, let's say. Which is crazy to think about getting a nine nine cap name. But I mean, you know, you average that out across all the micros in Canada, right? It makes a little bit more sense. But that it was 415 basis points above the 10-year bond yield. In 2009, during the GFC, it was 453 basis points above the bond yield. And that was a cap rate of about 7% nationwide in Canada. So national cap rate. The source on this is Bank of Canada and Altus Group, by the way. Now, go to present day. We've seen... So during that period of time, from about 2007 to 2009, you saw cap rate expansion. So investment yields were getting better. Prices were coming down. Rents were staying stable or potentially going up. So yields were getting better on these real estate investments. You fast forward that same metric to to present day and cap rates are at about 432 basis points above the Canadian 10-year bond yield. But both of those metrics are significantly lower than they were back then with a national cap rate today being around 5%. So I'm just going to give a quick little run through on on sort of what happened with those cap rates from start to finish, kind of just to summarize and then I'll let you jump back in. 1980, the 80s was kind of a slow and steady compression of cap rates. So investment yields are actually getting less compelling. Prices were going up because you're starting to see more institutions get into investment. But during that downturn, we did see a spike up in cap rates. In the 90s, cap rates were very much expanding, slow and steady, but that trend sort of got kicked off by that recession in the early 90s. Rolling over after the dot-com crisis, maybe people learned something about investing in tech. You know, Pets.com wasn't the compelling thing anymore. So they started getting into hard assets again, and those cap rates compressed faster than they had historically ever. And that was where this US obsession with real estate speculation came in. Everybody was getting into real estate. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so cap rates were getting, they dropped from something like 8% nationally to you know a 5% cap right before that. So your US nationwide was almost at a 5 cap heading into that final recession. They jumped back up to, let's say, a 6.5 and then steady downtrend through the 2010s to present day. From about you know, let's say a six, five, seven ish cap rate down to a four percent. So we're trading at historic low cap rates right now, which is not a great thing. We want higher cap rates. Well, I mean, you and I do certainly, and and typically the the style of investment that I advise people to pursue is seeking things that you know. I mean, look, 
your yield has to be high enough from my perspective. Like I'm not signing myself up when I'm investing in real estate. I'm not signing myself up for a savings vehicle, right? When we think about the way Canadians buy real estate, we often commit ourselves to a payment. We're not buying a house. We're buying a payment, right? And so Canadians historically not exceptionally good at saving money. Mortgages are a great way for us to be forced to do that, right? And the cheaper that they are, the more principal we're paying down every month when we pay our bank as a thank you for letting us keep our house. You know, if you're buying a two cap in Toronto, right? Or if you're buying a two cap condo in Toronto with condo fees, like you're burning money. And yeah, I mean, maybe you're getting two grand a month in equity paid by the rental income. But, you know, if you're paying a thousand bucks a month, then I mean, really what you're getting, you're basically getting a 100% return on savings. That's before you think about your cash on cash return or any of the other metrics that you should be using to analyze real estate. Yeah, wow. Really, really well said, guys. Dan and I are going to do another episode unpacking a lot of what he just said from cap rates to IRR to all the different types of ways different investors analyze the properties, different metrics they use. Just to keep things rolling here, I'm just going to give a quick closeout of the 2000s and just wanted to explain why Canada didn't get as affected as as, as the states and, and then some, some countries globally. I'm going to kind of give us a little summary of the findings that we've gone over. And then Dan and I are going to have a quick discussion summarizing if it is a good time to buy real estate in, in a rising rate environment. So not advice. Quickly, quick, <laughs> not financial advice. Not financial advice. You'll hear that at the end as well. So quick summarization as to why Canada's housing market didn't plunge in the same way the American market did. Really, the, the 2008 crisis was caused by the housing bubble, unlike a lot of the other recessions, which affected the housing bubble afterwards. This recession was actually caused by the housing bubble bursting in the States, which obviously had global effect with global financial systems. That was actually, in my opinion, just mortgage fraud on a mass scale. So Canada's got a lot more of a regulated banking system, which prevented lenders from giving mortgages to people that blatantly could not afford to pay them. Those less scrutinization of mortgages in which mortgage debts are packaged together and sold as security. So that was the whole, we don't need to get into that. Well, I mean, it's worth maybe discussing because in Canada, we don't really sell mortgage-backed securities at scale and there's really no like private market for them. Like CMHC is kind of the only one who's buying those MBSs off of banks in Canada, right? So exactly, it's less systemically, I mean- you know, if banks were only lending in real estate, then it might be systemically risky for the government to be buying all of those MBSs. But that's not the thing. Like the other thing is that Canadian banks are exceptionally diversified. And that's probably something you hear a lot about on TCI when those guys talk about why those are good businesses to purchase. We have a oligopolistic banking system. It's not like the states where they had 2,000 financial institutions. You know, it's the same issue in the savings and loan crisis. They have a bunch of these, like 1,400 banks or something failed during that period of time because everybody's just like trying to be competitive. And the way to do that is make ridiculously risky financial products for the average person who has no clue what they're borrowing. Which always, Capitalism, baby. always results in a race to the bottom. Yeah. I mean, and fortunately, we, don't, we haven't seen that in, in the Canadian market because the scope of our financial system is very elementary. And that's ultimately, it could be a saving grace you know, in the current downturn. I think we might have some other challenges that we're going to be dealing with. But we got six chartered banks, right? I mean, five plus one, let's say, national kind of just sneaked in there. But these are banks that are regulated by the Bank Act in Canada. So they have to follow liquidity requirements, Basel three, et cetera. There's a lot of rules because they're considered globally significant. I mean, 
Canadian banks are some of the biggest banks in the world, right? They they have a huge presence presence in the states and globally in capital markets, etc. And so the world doesn't want to see them fail. And so in order to do that, they have to keep a very small exposure to any one thing, but in you know, in the context of this conversation, only a small portion of their book is lending money for residential mortgages or real estate period. And the main takeaway from that is diversification is a good thing. Yeah, it is. It is. So let's just, I'm going to run through a couple high level points, takeaways for, for our listeners here. What do our findings show us? Canada has seen prime rates from 22.75 at its highs all the way to 2.25 at its lows, and then, and then again all the way to 0.25 on the overnight side. Historically, we're still looking at low interest rates. The Bank of Canada uses the rate to fight inflation, which we've seen happen cyclically every time. That decreases buying power, which initially drives both transaction volume and asset prices down. Asset prices level out and take longer to recover, but transaction volume usually picks back up first. So that begs the final question. How does Canadian real estate respond in a rising rate environment? Well, this is my take. It is reactionary to the consumer mentality and very dependent on the interest rate. So when inflation is high, rates go up to fight them. Canadian real estate sales and volume and price fall. They slowly recover as do all things with time. The only question is how much as we've seen each cycle is different, right? There's been 11 recessions. Each one has taken different times to recover. So in closing, for me, I think a good real estate investment ideally shouldn't be this subjective to rate changes. If you're buying a personal residence to live in for years and years, obviously proceed with caution, but rates and rate changes shouldn't be top of mind in in the sense that don't be walking away from your forever home if the Bank of Canada raises you know, 50 bips. And then from the investor standpoint, this is an investor podcast. After all, just make sure your numbers work. You know, Leave room in those margins. Run your numbers at a few points higher. Stress test yourself. Dan, what are your final thoughts on this? Yeah, I think I have a similar outlook. It's worth looking at at the patterns that have happened in these markets, especially the greater Toronto area, which you know today is June 28th. And House prices are already down in the GTA in some markets more than 20%. Yet the delta, the change that we've seen in borrowing power as a result of rate hikes is around 10 to 15%, depending on the borrower, what type of credit product they're using, et cetera. So either the market is forward looking, which it could be, but also if you are waiting for prices to come down, the price reduction has outpaced the credit cost acceleration, right? So you have to think about buying real estate as an investment or as a house and the costs associated with it. If you're going to lose 100k to equity going down, right? That's downside risk, but you could also lose 100k to borrowing costs going up if you wait a little longer depending on over the course of a mortgage term. And we should probably actually do a full episode analyzing the rate sensitivity and we could talk about trigger rates and stuff like that. But from my perspective, it's do the math on how much borrowing power you're going to lose to rate hikes. And whether or not the equity position that you're in and the equity risk, the forward-looking equity risk is worth taking given where you stand with your own financial position on interest rates. Wow. Love it. Okay. We are going to stop it there. First episode in the books. My name is Nick Hill. You can find me 
online across all platforms at my buddy Nick. If you are interested in working with me on the mortgage side of things, G and H Mortgage Group. Dan and I don't have a website or anything set up for this podcast yet because it's the first one. So we will keep everyone posted as things get built out. Yeah. And if you want to find me on social media, I mean, probably easiest just to Google me, Daniel Foch, F-O-C-H. I think Google will probably put up the platform that you're most likely to click on, but I'm pretty much on everything. And if I'm not, like, just tell me and I'll try and make content on that platform too. You know, if you want direct links, I host a Twitter space every week. It's a live event. We talk to a bunch of people across the real estate industry about you know, whatever's going on. So those are really cool. And then dfoch.ca is a website that goes to all of my direct links. If you want to send me an email, schedule a call, etc. Dan, you're famous enough that you just have to type your name into Google. Well, you, I you, think I'm, I'm probably third page. At I this think point. it's just because you got such a generic name. Yeah, I guess that's the word. <laughs> I, was try, I, I was searching my Rolodex for a diplomatic word, and there just wasn't. I one. appreciate it. Yeah, whatever, whatever. All right, thanks, Dan. We'll see you soon, everybody. Thank you. Have a good one. The Canadian real estate investor is for entertainment purposes only, and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.